Hello, and welcome to another Film 5.0 podcast. This week's guest is director of photography, Tom Del Ruth. Tom's worked on such films as The Mighty Ducks, The Breakfast Club, and The West Wing. This is part one. So sit back, relax, and let's start the show. Tom Del Ruth, Mark. Well, uh, fortunately for me, I grew up in a show business family, and so the bug of entering the entertainment business was always there. In what capacity, I wasn't quite sure, but I knew that that was the direction that I wanted to head. When I was about eight or nine years old, I, my dad bought me a Brownie Hawkeye, which was a little box camera, 120 Kodak film. And I started taking pictures with it, and I really enjoyed the idea of being able to capture moments on film. You know, this was new to me. I mean, of course, I've seen pictures before, but, you know, having to be able to create my own was very interesting. Not that they were of any value compositionally or even socially, but they were, it was just interesting for me to do. And I thought I really enjoyed it. And as I got a little older, I got a little more sophisticated camera and a little more sophisticated camera. Uh, and I decided, well, you know, I really do like this, but I'm not sure that that's going to lead to anything that I'm in reality going to do. And uh, when I got out of high school, I, uh, you know, you're 18 years old and you really don't know what you're going to do with your life. I joined the Army. And after spending four or five, four or five years, that was four and a half years I was in that thing. And after I got out, uh, I wanted at that point, I was fairly sure that there was a, something in the entertainment business that I wanted to do. And at the time, I thought, well, it might be interesting if I become an actor because I enjoy theatrics in that way. And I was pretty broad humor and I was always, you know, the kind of the class clown. So it was kind of a nice, it thought would be a nice fit for me. So I started taking acting classes in a, a, a school in Beverly Hills and the the guy who ran the school was named uh, Ben Bard, who was the casting director at 20th Century Fox. And so they had this program in which they kind of developed uh, talent, not necessarily for 20th Century Fox, but in a general sense. You do these little skits and stuff and casting directors come in and see you. So I was involved in that for quite a while, but at the same time I needed to earn a little bit of money. And so I was lucky enough, I submitted an application to Disney's and they hired me at Walt Disney's in the message department. So I was uh, stuck in the basement for a few years sorting mail. And I'd go out on mail runs and they send me to different departments and I'd drop mail off and I became familiar with these various areas of the entertainment business that I was, well, I was aware of, but not really. And so I, they put me in some kind of a small program that they had. They thought that I might have a future with Disney. And with that in mind, they asked me if I wanted to go into this little training program that they had in which they put me a month in each, each department in the studio. Animation, camera, props, wardrobe, uh, production. Uh, also with Of Iwerks, who at that time was the head of Disney World, where they were uh, designing all of the, the uh, rides for Disney World. So that was an opportunity for me to spend some time in the various things and find out what area of the Disney organization I would like to go to because then I would have my choice after selecting that, assuming that my efficiency reports from my particular boss in the message department were adequate 
and they were. I mean, they, he liked me. A number of other kids were in the same program as I. Uh, but at that time, I wanted to. I had realized that I wanted to become a cinematographer. But being a cinematographer at Walt Disney's during the early mid '60s was basically a dead end because you were really talking about animation camera. They weren't doing a lot of live action, although they did, but what they did was hire outside DPs. They didn't have particularly their own camera department. So the, uh, the head of camera in animation, I can't remember the gentleman's name, long since passed away, recommended that I talk to a friend of his who was the head of the camera department at 20th Century Fox, and that was Saul Halpern. And so I made an appointment with Mr. Halpern, and I drove over to 20th, and uh, we chatted for a while, and he'd found out that I had been in the Army for, for quite some time. He was a veteran himself, World War II, uh, and uh, he knew the name Del Ruth because my dad, who was a director, had done a number of pictures for 20th Century Fox back in the 30s and 40s when Daryl Zanuck came over there and took over the studio because Daryl Zanuck and my dad were very close friends. So that's where his familiarity was with, with my father, plus whatever reputation he might have had. So he asked me if I'd be interested in coming over to the camera department at 20th Fox. And I said, geez, I would love to. Uh, and those were the days when each studio basically had staff assistants and they had staff operators. It was a continuous group of people who they could bring in on a daily basis and assign to various shows as needed. And so we were basically on payroll five days a week, uh, whether or not we were working, but we were still required to come into the studio and go to the camera department. And we could be there just sitting around or we could be sorting equipment or doing other things. And then at the moment's notice, they might, for example, need a second camera on voyage to the bottom of the sea. Well, they already had a camera, several camera crews already sitting in the camera department who would just grab cameras on the lung and drive on over to that stage, make those shots that they required, load up the lung again, come back and then sit until you wait for eight or 10 hours until you could go home. So it was kind of a, uh, it, it was like a, a SWAT team <laughs> of camera people that were on staff at these various studios and I happened to be one of them. Well, I had been there for about a year and a half and this was now towards my 1967. And Saul called me, Saul Halpert, called me into his office one day and he said, Tom, he says, you know, the studio business is changing dramatically and, uh, and the changes that are going to come to this studio are going to be dramatic. Uh, the film that we did, Cleopatra, which came out several years earlier, had virtually bankrupt the studio. And consequently, Fox had to send, uh, sell off uh, 25 acres of its back lot in order to meet its financial obligations. So I knew the studio was sinking, but nonetheless, we were still had full capacity stages. We were doing one film after another. And he says, you're a, a staff assistant here, but I'd like you to go out into the independent world. And I went, whoa, what's that? You know, that was uh, anathema to me. I didn't know what that was. He says, we have a cinematographer coming in to do a picture for us. His name is Conrad Hall. And he's a young guy, and uh, uh, or younger man by the standards of the day, he was like 45 years old, which was in that time young for a DP. And he was coming in to do a picture called Guide for a Married Man. And uh, they, and uh, I'd like to put you on that picture as a second assistant. 
uh, to, you know, kind of worm your way into maybe forming some sort of a relationship, you know, if that's possible, because that's really what the world needs now is people that are going to independence. And I said, I, I love the opportunity. And so I met Conrad and he liked me and I met the operator who was Jordan Cronoweth and the uh, assistant who was Bobby Thomas and Bobby liked me and, and he said, yeah, come on, why don't you join us? So I started working for Guide for a Married Man and then I uh, left the studio right after that with Mr. Halpern's blessing and I went with Conrad Hall subsequently doing a lot of films for him and then when Jordan Cronoweth became a director of photography back in the late 60s, I now had Jordan that I could work for. So I was working as a first assistant for both Conrad and Jordan, and Jordan was under contract to a commercial company. And that meant that I could go under contract to the commercial company too as a technician. And so I was on this, I was really lucky, I was on this extraordinarily high pay scale in the 60s for, it was a technician rate, but it was very high and it was double that because it was a commercial rate. And I couldn't believe my luck. I was making a substantial amount of money at a very young man. And I thought, oh my God, uh, this is wonderful. You know, so I, <laughs> uh, you know, I just went nuts. I <laughs> went out and bought a portion, you know, and, uh, and I, I had my GI Bill and I actually bought a house up on Mulholland Drive right over, right where Outpost Drive and Mulholland. It was a stilted house that you'd look out over the city. And I'd sit up there and I was 27 years old and I was sitting up there and, and I put my feet up and I said, my God, I, I, I really, sometimes I have a few drinks and I've talked to myself. And I'd say, Tom, I said, how did you get so lucky? I mean, here I am sitting up in this house. I'm looking over the city. I got a nice car in the parking lot, you know, and I can probably want to get cash in my pocket. And I said, this is great. And so it was basically uh, that introduction through all of those steps, you know, that brought me to the realization that I, I really wanted to follow cinematography as a career because I was captivated by the way these gentlemen were uh, conceiving and executing the creation of an image. And my father, uh, along with his friends who were producers and directors, had very high opinions of directors of photography in, that, in those days because they were uh, essentially uh, Merlin the magician as far as making manufacturing and creating the image and it was such an arcane subject at that time that most of the laymen wouldn't couldn't understand how it was so the prestige of the cinematographer was extraordinarily high and consequently so was the this uh, pay scale so it was fun like this little guy here he's gonna be a DP too <laughs> hello buddy <laughs> anyhow so you know that's how I got there and then I was lucky enough to work with a lot of well-known cinematographers and that of course boosted my uh, boosted my recognition throughout the business so I was gainfully employed uh, through the period of, of, of being an assistant cameraman doing one film after another and then in, one, in 1973 I was sitting in an apartment in Marina del Rey and I was feeling sorry for myself which was my want at that time and I thought to myself, I don't want to be an assistant anymore. I want to be an operator, but no one's asked me. So what I did, and this is true, I had my little toolbox, which was a ditty bag and a small toolbox because I wasn't much of a technician in that sense because in those days you had technicians that, uh, you know, machinists that would work on your cameras. You'd have to do a lot. Well, I walked out in the hallway and there was a trash chute and I took my ditty bag and my, my tools and I threw it in the trash 
the, down the trash chute on the second floor. It lands in a bin. Well, I go back in the house and I'm going, hmm, maybe, you know, I was a little iffy there. And I pick up the phone and I call Conrad Hall. And he says, I'm so sorry, Tom, I don't have anything for you, but I, you know, I, I'll move you up sometime. And I went, well, okay. And then I, thank you, Connie. And then I called uh, Bruce Surtees, who I had been working for, and Bruce hadn't had anything. At the moment, he was uh, unemployed and didn't have anything coming up in the future. And then I had worked for Bill Fraker a few times, many commercials with him. So I called Bill as kind of like a last resort. And I said, I said, Bill, I'd really like to be a camera operator. And he says, oh, my God. He says, what an extraordinary look. Uh, he said, I've just got signed to do a picture today called Aloha, Bobby and Rose uh, with uh, this director, Floyd Mutrix. It was a very counterculture picture. And we we're going to shoot it in Hollywood. And uh, he said, I, uh, I'd be happy to, uh, to move you up. I said, oh, my God, this is so great. So I moved up, and then I was, a, I was a camera operator for Bill Fraker. And I went, ooh, this is cool. You know, so this is cool. So I did my first movie with, uh, called uh, Aloha, Bobby, and Rose. And the director, Floyd Mutrix, was a very interesting man. He was of the hippie culture. And his wife was also from that. Both of them wore electric shoes. So every time they took a step, their feet would light up. And we shot a lot at night, and it was almost psychedelic. You could see these feet moving around the darkness, and, and, and you'd go find out where the director and his wife were. And it was hysterical, you know, oh, God, you know, drag racing in the streets. The movie was about that. And so it was uh, kind of reliving my youth. I used to be a, uh, a car enthusiast when I was a young kid. I used to drag race all the time in high school, and so... I got a chance to drive a couple of the drag cars, you know, in the movie itself. And so that was a lot of fun. And I thought uh, that was at the top of the world, I thought, in 1973. Yeah, I was very, well, I, I, to kind of go back over what I had previously said or touched on. How fortunate you were. I was too. very fortunate, uh, you know, to hook up with Jordan Cronenworth and get involved in the commercial world. Because for an assistant cameraman and for cinematographers and itself, during that period in the 70s, uh, that was a very lucrative area to be involved in. Uh, the pay was three or four times what the assistants would be making on films or, uh, or on television series, especially in films. So uh, I was very fortunate, and uh, it was very financially remunerative to me, and and it was uh, it was fun, and I and I was able to purchase items and goods and all the material little things, you know, that kind of make life enjoyable. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but there was, you know, you can only entertain yourself so much by sitting in this house and playing around with a expensive sports car. So it was really about. It was really about trying to further my career in terms of being able to understand, learn from people who I respected. And uh, the biggest influences in my cinematic career were Conrad Hall and Jordan Cronenworth. Those were the two basic guys that I patterned in many ways some of my style and influences and inspirations from. Uh, those particular gentlemen. And Bruce Surtees, I have to mention, is too, uh, uh, was also, I was, he was responsible for uh, much of my uh, stylizations. He was very, very good with hard light. And uh, that was uh, an area that I, I learned quite well uh, how to use hard light and how to 
manipulate shadow and shade uh, by the use of grip equipment. So I became very adroit at being able to, uh, well, instruct a grip. I mean, I don't want to sound, uh, you know, as though that I'm superior to the key grip, but I wasn't in, in that sense. I, it was the, my ability to be able to communicate on a mechanical level to a grip exactly how I wanted the stand set in order to achieve the lighting effect that I was after, especially in hard light. Soft light is much more difficult because all you can do is use large, you know, dubatine in order to shade something, possibly, you know, because it was basically scattered light everywhere. So it was a well, great learning experience with those particular gentlemen. And much of what they taught me, I carried on to, uh, you know, my own career and uh, tried to build on that. So it was very interesting. So did you visit your dad on sets, or was that just sort of... I did. Uh, my dad picked, did a picture with Doris Day and Gordon McRae back in around 1952 or 53, I don't remember. I probably was about 10 or 11 at that time. And it was on Moonlight Bay. And the backlight at Warner Brothers had a lake. Well, actually, it was the green area that's still there now, but it's a big park. And uh, that, of course had been removed and they built a large lake with a, a gazebo and the docks and things like that. And I remember being out in a rowboat uh, with uh, my dad uh, while he was next to the camera boat. And the camera boat, of course, was photographing Doris Day and as they were paddling along. And I thought it was just the most wonderful experience. It was like 85 degrees at night. Uh, somewhere, I think it was August or something in Los Angeles, and it was, you know, it was a wonderful experience. And I, you know, I got to see my dad work, and uh, and and understood kind of what he what he did. You know, he's a fairly quiet guy, and he, you know, he just kind of paddle over to the boat, and he'd whisper something, and then he'd paddle back and come back. And I was just amazed uh, uh, by the amount of effort it took to make a movie because I really didn't know until that point. But when I saw, you know, 30 or 40 people standing in various areas, then and they all had a particular job to do on that set, especially the camera crews. I thought that was fantastic. I was just amazed at being able to see that Mitchell camera with the big finder on the side. And I thought, wow, that is a piece of equipment. And I thought that was really stunning. Later on, uh, I think a year later, he was doing a picture with a musical called Starlift uh, with, uh, oh boy, um, I can't remember. The, they had, it was an all-star dancing musical cast in it, and uh, we, we uh, were shooting at Van Nuys Airport, and at the time, that was a partial Air Force base, and we had B-29s, and so I got to fly in a B-29 bomber. Uh, you know, they took me up, the Air Force guys, and that was a thrill, you know, for a 12-year-old to be in that huge airplane and flying around. My dad uh, you know, went with me one time on one of the trips around the pattern and then over Burbank and came around and we landed and stuff. So I got to be on the set with him uh, that way. And then I think it was one other show I think he was doing somewhere in, in 19, I think 59, he was doing a Maverick, which was a television series with... Uh, one of the big names at the time. And uh, I, uh, I accompanied to them set a couple of times there. So, you know, that was fun just to watch him work. It must have been nice to be able to see how he worked 
and interacted with actors, crew. You probably took a lot from that, maybe not knowingly at the time, but how he respected and or talked to different people, you know, allowed you to be able to see how that all works from behind the camera. Mm -hmm. uh, you worked on both TV and film in mm -hmm. your career. What, what was the procedural differences between working on a TV series and then working on a film? Because on a TV series, you have different episodes. And then on a film, you're just on it straight. So what was your, your, your prep for that? Well, when I first moved up, I was, uh, I was moved up by a studio and not a producer. Universal promoted me to a director of photography in 78 or 79. And uh, they basically assign you to a show. Uh, the producer has to agree to it, of course, but, uh, but it so happens that Mrs. Columbo was going into production at that time. And uh, we got together with the producer and, and said, would you be interested in Tom Del Ruth, who was one of our good operators who's done a lot of films for us and and producers said sure let's you know give them a shot you know so we'll so that's where I started uh, doing Mrs. Columbo and that was exciting now the the difference of course I had done mostly feature films prior to that but the needs of television and feature films are well basically dramatically different from a cinematographer there is a the speed is 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 important and economy of scale uh, is important too when you're doing a television show as opposed to a feature film. Television in those days, I think we had probably seven days to, or seven or eight days to do an episode, and we would never go over schedule. Uh, we would always accommodate at that time. So what was interesting for me was was the it was learning to work within the confines of basically a restrictive medium as television was at that time because it was very formulaic and being able to accomplish all of the day's work within 12 hours hopefully and being able to do it within the seven days and I think that the discipline that that imposed helped me later on because I was known to be well good at what I did as far as lighting was concerned but I was also known to be quick or fast and so that was a big sales point that my agent could use. And so that was one of the reasons that I was able to bicycle essentially between feature films and television when there was a very strong demarcation between feature DPs and television DPs. And I, and I was one of the few, there may have been one or two others that might have done it, but I was fairly successful in going from a television show to feature films, and I could do one, maybe one or two feature films, and then go right back and do a television movie, which a lot of people couldn't do, and I would always be able to manage it. And I thought that that was uh, basically as a result of my experience doing so many feature films as an assistant and an operator and knowing how that works and becoming friends with a lot of the people that were doing those feature films and still continue to do them, and also building my repertoire with television people who I was just now beginning to learn or understand and be able to know. And so I developed a reputation in both areas, and so I could kind of go between both. But I must say that uh, sometimes I was not in the running for some films I would have liked to have done, although I was on the interview list, and I may have gone on the interview, and, and in some cases I did, I didn't get the film, only because I had done 
a bit of television prior to that. In other words, they weren't quite sure I was really a movie cameraman or was I a television cameraman. And so you had the ego of the director sometimes, you know, that you had to say, you know, he wants to have someone who's a specialist in feature films. So I understand that and I, I respect that. And that's still that way today. You know, it's, it's very much a game of personalities in that aspect. So you uh, got a lot of inspiration from Connie Hall and some of the early cinematographers. Uh, what do you feel that you, what was your, your strength or did you have something that you really thought you wanted to put your mark on as far as cinematically? Was there a look or something that you really wanted to? Yes, the one, the genre that I prefer to work in is, is romanticism period romanticism. And I, I think that the, uh, the project that most expressed my visual sensibilities didn't come to me until late in my career when I uh, did uh, five years of the West Wing. Because there was an opportunity <clears throat> to work uh, in a romanticized, but yet not period, environment which I could give it a very kind of glossy period warm feel but yet at the same time have stretched the negative so I could go to deep blacks and extremely highly overexposed and so I lit the sets with extreme contrast but there was a goldish kind of romanticism to it combined with the way I shot it the way I manipulated the film and as and using a combination of soft light and hard light, uh, you know, together, a lot and a lot of uh, photographic techniques, and bleach bypass, and you know, stutter step, and there was a variety of opportunities and tools that I could use on that particular show, and so that opened uh, to me. Uh, uh, it was basic, well, basically a breath of fresh air because it's not the kind of it's not the kind of opportunity one gets very often, and that appealed to my particular sense and sensibilities and being able to use how I visualize an image. Uh, Conrad was a was a proponent of this as well. Uh, Conrad was very much into the use of a variety of different filters, which I learned from him basically. Uh, how to use these things in order to achieve a certain effect because the uh, digital world was not yet upon us particularly and so everything had to be done in the camera and for the most part it still could be uh, if it wasn't for the fact that there are so many people in the digital domain that want to have their hands on some sort of control so they can play with the image and so, and that was an anathema to me because I always shot in a way that I didn't want it, when it fell off the truck and landed at the lab, that's what I, I wanted it to look like. And that's what had been agreed between myself, the producer and the director, that the picture would look like. So I didn't want a third party in there, you know, twisting knobs and pretending that they were a DP when in fact they are not. Now they may have great skills as colorist, yes, granted. But that's not to say that they should run off on their own and try to make their movie. So they want to screw it up, screw up your own movie and not mine. So that's what I was trying to do. Well, I guess the only way that you can control the digital domain, and I don't have a great deal of experience in this because 
uh, I captured everything that I had shot was always on film, never digital. Well, for the exception of one episode of West Wing, which we did in a digital format so that I could make it look as brassy and horrible as possible because that was the theme of that particular episode. And I thought that was fun to kind of screw it up, you know, artistically weird. You know, I was just playing with the thing and raising the gamma and doing all that and the images going everywhere. And I thought that was fun to do. But then, I, you know, the reality was somebody else could be doing that to me without my knowing it. But nonetheless, even though I was capturing in film, I still had a, di a digital finish. Uh, so in the digital finish, I was always the one that went into the, uh, you know, the timing session uh, with the colorist and we'd worked on it together. I'd go in at lunch or I would go in on, a, on a, usually a Saturday because the colorist was usually working six days a week there at that time. And uh, we'd work on it together and we'd get one, two, three scenes and this is the way it would go. And of course this particular colorist now I had, for five, had, had for five years. So after, you know, six episodes, he pretty much had ideal of what it was that I was looking for in the image. Now today when you have the digital capture, I think the only way you can protect yourself to the extent that a cinematographer needs to is to have a lookup table, uh, you know, that's baked into the image as it's being captured and then uh, supporting that with a clear understanding with your uh, digital image technician as well as your colorist that this is exactly the way that you want your film to look. And I would go as far as to shoot uh, stills separately uh, of each particular film and do your own color correction and then send those stills along with the image to the, uh, the post-production. Now, the politics of that, I'm sure, today, can be extensive. Uh, you have to have the assurance by the producer that your look will be preserved all the way down the pipeline. And absence that assurance, then you're uh, inevitably going to be, to some extent, at the mercy of the post-production supervisor or, in some cases, uh, the editor. And so you have then lost control of your work and I think thereby diminishes the craft of cinematography. And in some cases, it almost eliminates the concept of cinematography because you're relegated to image capture with the idea that anyone and everyone along the post-production pipeline can manipulate your image and produce uh, any kind of an image that you would could imagine. And, and I think uh, if I were working today, that would be very disappointing to me. I don't think, I certainly wouldn't have handled handle it well. You know, I'd be like a bull in a china shop. So anyway, I'm glad that uh, I had an opportunity to do what I did on film. I respect the old masters of the craft. Uh, I still think a, uh, a variety of the stuff that I see in the digital world on television, you know, is, is remarkable. But it's much simpler when you have an effective range in a camera of 13 stops. 
you don't, all you can go is just push a button, you know, and capture it like that and then stretch it in post-production. I mean, you don't really have to do it. And then they say, you know, and shoot available light. Well, uh, the available light may be fine for exposure and you probably, and hopefully it might even work for the scene. But you have to light for the drama. You have to light for the personalities. You have to light not for the look of the, of the actress that's in the film, but the character. You have to play it dark and blue and green and black and the shadows and the highlights. Those are all integral parts to developing the story and the character. And the idea of being just off camera with a 20 by 20 and banging a soft light into, you know, foam core and then going back and getting three foot candles and then saying ready and shooting, you know, is, uh, I think is, is, is a big waste of time because you're not really lighting anything. You know, you're not doing, you're not doing your job. So I, um, I'm glad that I had the opportunity in film and I think that I'm, I'm not positive about this, but I think that uh, that I, I think that if I were working today, I'd be uh, an unhappy cameraman. So. When you were offered Westworld, and you had, during the nineties you did a whole series of really good movies, mm -hmm. and suddenly there was this TV script, which is good writing. So now, how did you go into that? I mean, with, I mean, obviously you surround yourself with the people, but I mean, what was the preparation for that and preparing the work for that? And were you comfortable in the beginning of that? Or? Oh yeah, uh, because I I I, uh, I understood. I understood uh, from the writing uh, the pace at which the show had to be delivered in terms of timing with the actors. So this this particular show is about communication. So one of the things that was very interesting to me and and something that I kind of insisted on, well, it missed me. Yeah, basically insisted on was the fact that we could walk and talk as much as possible and take us by various monitors continuously, showing various items of news flashes that, that was about the White House and about the state of the world and also the country at that particular time. So it was combining the walk and talk uh, through shadows, basically highlights and shadows, uh, with the ups and downs in terms of the stylization of the hallways or any particular room we were in, uh, and that playing it against monitors, which were giving us additional information about what is taking on at the time. And so that's what I thought we were, what we should do. And when I talked to the director, Tommy Shalami, about that, that's exactly what he had in mind as well. I mean, it was, we were both uh, of one mind in terms of how this particular show would look. Uh, I had a bit of resistance at the very beginning because of the pilot. I shot the pilot quite dark. I was two stops underexposed most of the time, uh, just the highlights so that I wouldn't be trapped in post-production by somebody manipulating it because I was shooting on film. And if you brought me up too much, you're going to start to get noise or green as it applies to film. So I shot it in that way. But when they went to transfer on the pilot, John Wells, who was our executive producer for sales reasons, uh, boosted the image, uh, which was contrary to what I wanted. Uh, and it, it was upsetting to me, but nonetheless, I had to keep my ego in check because the series sold as a result of the pilot. 
not because of my cinematography, it was because of the, the, just the, the whole ambiance, the cast, the writing, all of this, you know, uh, produced this wonderful work. But once we got into the first episode, I got an assurance that there would be no further manipulations of the image. Uh, once I laid down the image, that's exactly how it was going to be. Now, uh, after the first or second episode, we started to get feedback from the networks that were, it was too dark. You know, they were not able to see parts of the set or parts of people that, you know, that they thought were integral to it. Well, I thought the other, the opposite of that. I would play people in darkness and shadow because they were telling untruths and lies. And they would only come forward into the light when there was a smattering of truth to what they were saying. So a lot of these people, it was an underhanded business politics. And I thought by using the darkness, I could accentuate that on a subtle side so that which people could understand uh, and, and connect with not only with the dialogue, but the fact of the darkness surrounding them that these people are really not on the up and up. And so that was uh, one of the ways in which I was to do that. And the other aspect of it was most of the people that saw the show always commented about the highlights because I had can lights above people that would come down and there were several, there was thousand foot candles of light coming out of those things. And they would virtually burn up when they would go underneath it. But that was to accentuate the movement because on the walk and talks, they would go through these boom bursts of light and it really added to the dynamicism of the image. When the camera was sweeping along and being in front of them, you'd have these bursts of light over the top of them. And it was really compelling. And then in a couple of situations in which actors uh, were uh, uh, in a really strong emotional moment when they were trying to make a point, I would put one of them under one of those lights and, and, and the light would hit them on their face and they'd be overexposed by five stops and they'd be screaming. And it was one of those punctuations that, was, that worked so well with the anger within. So there was these techniques that I could employ to help sell a scene and the story. So that was very fulfilling to me in a way that many projects that I had done in the past uh, weren't. So that was, you know, I felt that once I had completed my five years at my, uh, that my career was kind of like, I, I went, <sighs> I went, you know, hey, well, mm, I don't know if I can do anything better than that. So, you know, it was one of those things where I thought, well, I maybe should throw in a towel. I did a few things after that, but uh, I had a picture with Rob Reiner, but uh, after that, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't thrilled with it, you know. Yeah, and, and you, that was perfect. I'm so glad you got that across. No good. It was awesome. I wanted to hear how that developed, like yeah. coming from a whole series of good films into a TV show. You didn't, who knew what it was going to be? Mm -hmm. But you had to have some control, otherwise it wouldn't, you wouldn't have been happy. So yeah. But um, I mean, to me, the show was so good, not just because of the writing, but because of all that stuff and the audience. They may totally. not realize that they're watching that. When they're listening and watch, they may not realize it's no. part of the reason they love it. So yeah. Pretty, uh, the highest compliment that I, what I got about that, the highest compliment that I got about that show was from Martin Sheen himself. He came up to me, uh, oh, somewhere about the third year or something. I think it was after I got the, my second Emmy for that. He came up to me and he says, I want you to know something. He says, uh, 
He says, your lighting and your contrast is a character in this show. And it's as, as important as any one of us actors. And I went, whoa, Martin, thank you. You know, so I was, you know, I was floored by that accolade. And uh, whether that's exactly true or not, well, that's to be determined. But still, it was nice to hear from such a grounded professional. So I, I, I've taken that to heart. Yeah, I, mean, I think it was true, and I think that that's what you intended without even realizing it, maybe. Yeah. I mean, he, he was saying exactly what you were, thought you were doing. Yeah. Serving the story. Yeah, serving the story. What's nice, though, is that uh, when someone who's not a cinematographer or involved exclusively in the visuals uh, comments about it, because then you know you're you're making some impression, uh, you know, on someone. Uh, and the, the idea of cinematography should be seamless. I mean, it shouldn't be sticking out there all by itself, uh, but because it's a part of the puzzle. It's a big piece of the puzzle, but nonetheless still part of a puzzle. And if you don't have the sound and the art direction and the costuming and the other elements, props, that go into making this, then, well, then, you know, we are lacking in some area and it affects the overall quality and, uh, and uh, well, basically, yes, the quality of the, the film that you're watching. You read every episode and you probably made notes or mental notes saying, okay, this is what's happening in this scene and, and really thought about what you needed to do per the scene and per the character and what is happening, right? Yeah, well, frequently I, uh, well, of course you'd, do, you'd, you'd read the script prior to the episode, and sometimes I would attend the table reads and sometimes not because I was usually always prepping something else. And, but the table reads wouldn't tell me a great deal except who the introduction of the characters were and perhaps who those particular actors were. But that not as part and parcel of my job as a cinematographer. My job is purely visual. So I would sit and, uh, and think about the scene before we would do it, but only a couple of hours before it. Uh, I knew what I was going to do because I had a certain look for the show that was going, I, I was going to need to accomplish that to start with. But I had so many lights in the set that were structured to so many dimmers on a board that I pretty much knew where I needed to be in any one particular level in order to achieve some sort of an emotional response. And, but having said that, I sometimes wouldn't know exactly how I'm going to light the scene or in terms of what the scene feels like until I see the actors rehearse. And when the actors rehearse and they're almost at full speed rather than just walking through the mechanics of it, then I can understand really what the scene is about and who I should accentuate, who I should not, uh, and the overall visual feel of what that particular scene is and the camera movement and that sort of thing, or lack of movement, you know, it depends on, on, on how that works. I did a film along the same lines in which I had to make it as uninteresting visually as I possibly could, and that was uh, The Breakfast Club. I came on to the Breakfast Club back in 85 in Chicago, you know, and I, uh, the set was almost completely built in the gym. And so the idea that I had for photographing the picture 
basically went out of the window because I, there were no windows in the library, so I couldn't show a passage of time. And I knew the entire film was going to take place in, in this particular library, and to have some visual interest in it, I need to have shafts of light that at least could move, you know, and, and, and throw shadows in different areas and maybe play the characters in that particular way. So I was really very disappointed when I got there and found that the set was completely built because the production designer had been on for quite some time before I was hired. I was hired late, and I, I'm not quite sure why. But anyway, I only had three weeks of prep. The set was almost built. So I was in a quandary. I couldn't legitimately play a lot of source light in a completely closed box. So I thought, they said, well, why don't, why don't I step away from the artistic visual of this particular thing and try to make this, since the story is about abject boredom of students in detention, of which I was in detention a number of times, so I know what this is, is just passing the time. Now, in this is his exploration of characters and character development. And that's what drives the story, not the visuals. So I thought to myself, well, I'm stuck here. So what do I do? So I thought, well, you know, I could make this as boring looking as I possibly can. And I toyed with that idea. I said, you know, nobody wants to hear you want to make a boring movie. But I thought, hmm, maybe I do. And I said, I got my thoughts together and I went over to John Hughes and I explained to John, I said, John, originally, you know, I was going to have these shafts of light and go in and we could play the light and, you know, you could work your way from sunrise to sunset in that particular day. He thought, all oh, that was wonderful. But then when the set was built, I said, you know, John, can't do any of that. And he went, oh. He said, why? And he said, well, I said, there's no way to do that. He said, oh, yeah, there's no light. So I said, well, I have a thought and I want to run this by you. I said, I basically said, what do you think about making a boring movie? <laughs> and John, I just laughed. He just laughed. What are you talking about? And he said, he said, I'm talking about a movie that's static, a movie that is not about gloss and look. It's a movie about telling a story. And I mean, we never move the camera. We never short side anybody. We put the camera in a place, put the person in the middle of the frame, and just sit there and let them talk. And now every tonality around them is exactly the same. In other words, there's 10 foot candles on them, there's 10 foot candles on that post, and there's something else over in the corner of this 10 foot candle. So it's basically evenly lit everywhere. And there's nothing more tedious to sit in a room that is fluorescent lit. You know, well, I didn't have fluorescent lights, but I had something, I could make it similar to that. So that's what I tried to do was to just make it as static and visually as uninteresting as I possibly could. The only conceit that I allowed myself was to put a cobalt blue uh, fluorescent down the scope of the, between the first and second floor so it gave a depth to the set, which I could not provide because I couldn't have a shadow contrast. So we started shooting in dailies where I thought, wow, this is kind of cool, you know, and it was neat because I had the color contrast. There was color in the set and the tonalities of the face were, were really, really wonderful. And, I, and then when we got to the end of the film, the only time I moved the camera was during the big exposition of the kids at the end when they were sitting around a half circle. I did it, you know, 180 degree move like that. And then that made that move significant. 
and the people really paid attention to that because this is the first time this camera's moving around. Other than when they were running around the hallway, you you know, you have to move with them, you know, in that particular context. But always when they're in this shell of a cocoon, uh, I kept it as even and visually as uninteresting as I possibly could. So that's kind of how I approached that. Now, I wasn't particularly happily doing that. That wasn't my first choice, maybe even not my second. But nonetheless, it worked really well for the movie. And of course, the movie, you know, stood the test of time and it's still, you know, you know, I've had foreigners come up at the museum where I'm a docent and say, oh my God, you know, we got, I, somehow we get on the conversation about, so somebody would say it was a cinematographer, well, what have you done? I said, well, you, you might know a picture, you know, Breakfast Club. And they went, oh, Breakfast Club. You know, that's, and I go, oh, that's great, you know, because it's cross-generational. You know, everybody goes through it in every culture. So I, I, I thought that was fun. So I'm very pleased with the legs that that movie had. So that's my little story about being boring. Like you said, boring, flat, uh, fluorescent light to beautifully yeah. done. And son to father. Yeah. Oh. Emilio and to his dad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Emilio and to his dad, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's energy, too. That's when, that's interesting, yeah. I thought about that. Yeah, I didn't think about that until you just said it. Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. Thanks for listening. You can find our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes at the Film 5.0 Podcast. And you can find us on YouTube at Film 5.0. Check out our social media at the Film 5.0 on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We're also available on Facebook at Film 5.0 and our webpage, thefilm50.com. See you next week for part two of Tom Del Ruth.